Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania, proclaiming the historic faith and the uncompromising grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, check out our website, graceanglicanonline.com. I encourage you now as we enter into the Word of God to uh, get a little physical. I invite you to um, put your hands over your heart, uh, just for a second. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pour down into our emotions and our minds a vision of your true self. We relinquish our rights, our hardness of heart, our defenses, our doubts, and we ask you in these moments to be the laborer who constructs new souls in a new world. Amen. Amen. Once a year, we highlight with seriousness the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is both singular and communal, that he is one and yet differentiated as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul concludes his second letter to the Corinthian church, and that's like writing to Las Vegas. And he's wanting at the end of his letter to link together two communities or two societies. There's an earthen society, which is called the church, and a heavenly society, which could be called the trinity. And he wants there to be a connection between the two of them so that what happens in the heavenlies affects what happens here and now. I want to begin with the earthen community or society. This comes from uh, the 11th verse. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. This passage is rich with warm and loving tones. And there's all sorts of language of connection here. I want you to notice first the familial language. He calls his audience brothers. Now, that's a broad term meaning brothers and sisters, but it's familial language. He doesn't uh, call them associates, and he doesn't call them comrades, uh, and and he doesn't call them acquaintances. He doesn't even call them friends. He calls them brothers. There is something about uh, Paul in his status as an apostle that does not put him above or beyond uh, the the same foundational realities of, of family because we have one common father and the rest of us are siblings in this family. And there is a saying that I've used with some frequency that water is thicker than blood. At least in Christianity, water, that is baptismal identity, is thicker and more important than uh, family heritage, than what's on your crest, than how you understand uh, your own uh, blood ties and close associations. So he calls them brothers, that's the familial language. He also uses physical language here. He says to greet one another with a holy kiss. That suggests some real connection, and we don't really do that here. I mean, it would be, a li- you know, in our context, I'm just not sure, you know. I mean, we live in a litigious age, but uh, we've, we've, re- we've replaced the, the holy kiss with the passing of the peace, which seems to be more ecclesially palatable. Uh, and, uh, b- but this idea that you, you need to express 
your connection in some physical, tangible way. And if you've never been hugged in the last year, you know uh, what it is to feel really isolated from the, uh, the human symphony. And so there needs to be some sort of connection, even physically. And then he talks about a geographic connection within this earth and society. He says, all the saints greet you. Now, he's probably writing this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, which is, you know, as far as they're concerned, a million miles away. And he's saying, even the people here who have never seen your faces, they don't know who you are, they don't know your children, they don't know your stories, these people greet you because we're all connected uh, beyond uh, um, land and lakes. It doesn't really matter because so long as we belong to the family of God, we belong to one another and we're connected to each other in this new earth and society called the church. But lastly, and this is really his emphatic point in the passage, there is a conciliatory component of this earth and society. He says it over and over again in various ways. He says, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, and live in peace. Now, why is he saying this? It's because the Corinthian church uh, was a church that was rife with struggle and competition and conflict. It wasn't like the Galatian church. The Galatian church were all in complete agreement with heresy. But, uh, uh, right? I mean, they were addicted to Pelagianism and works righteousness and proving themselves by what they could do. Uh, This is a different scenario in which people are competing with one another about which apostle they listen to and who's the apostle with the right amount of authority and what spiritual gift do you have because I bet mine is better than yours. And, oh, you didn't have any more communion bread left. Well, I'm so sorry. I scarfed it down on purpose so that you couldn't get any by the time you arrived at the service. And so it's not a surprise that conflict and strife and competition are uh, a part of the DNA of this body, the old DNA, which is passing away. Uh, and so Paul is urging these people who, uh, who know all about division to seek, aim for restoration. Uh, I find that that chafes against the instincts of most people. Recently, I, I learned of a new, a new way of dealing with conflict, and it was based on the television program, which has sadly been canceled, uh, called Conspiracy Theory with Jesse Ventura. Uh, now, now, Jesse Ventura was a professional wrestler who became the independent governor of Minnesota, of course, yes, and uh, wild and weird times. And, uh, and anyway, there was a particular episode of Conspiracy Theory, which, uh, which I watch addictively. I mean, it's, it's just the best show in the whole world. I mean, you, you need to see this. I mean, it's so absurd as to be wonderful and so wonderful as to be absurd. And if you, if you watch it, it's about aliens and reptilians and uh, a lot about secret societies and shadow governments and all this stuff, and it's fantastic. And on one particular episode, they were talking about the, um, the, what is the deep state, like a secret government that's really running it. You don't know that, but that's true. I'm kidding. Uh, so there's a deep state that's running everything, and they have this gun that they've invented called a vaporizer. A vaporizer gun. Now, a vaporizer gun shoots you or shoots somebody, and you, you don't suffer. You just cease to exist. And, and so that way you can take out whole armies, rather mercifully in a way, because you can just shoot them with your vaporizer gun. Now, in the program, it's like whenever a program hunts for the Sasquatch, they never find the Sasquatch. Well, they never found the vaporizer gun either, but somewhere the deep state has it buried. It's probably under your garden, but nevertheless. Um, don't you want a vaporizer? I mean, don't you want one? I want a vaporizer. I, I want to pre-order a vaporizer off of Amazon. Because uh, wouldn't, wouldn't your life be better, in some sense, if you could neutralize a threat? You have somebody in your life who sends you terrible emails, passive-aggressive emails at like 2 a.m. 
or you have somebody in your life that just is itching for a fight with you. You have somebody in your life and you dread it when they say, hey, let's go get coffee sometime. Because you know they're not meeting with you to say what they like about you. And so you want a vaporizer, and I want a vaporizer. And a vaporizer would solve your problems, or so you think. But, but Paul wants us to evolve past the point where we need the vaporizer gun. He says, instead of functionally making your enemies just disappear from your life, walking away, I want you to aim for something else. Aim for restoration. Live at peace. Uh, comfort one another and agree with one another. Now, that's the earth and society and his moral vision for how we're to interact with one another in the church. And let me say that if we did this, if we really accomplished this vision, even a little bit, our witness to the world would be a beautiful thing because it would run so contrary to what we see everywhere else. Well, that's the earth and society. And he links it to the heavenly society. And this is so important to link it to the heavenly society because if the gospel is simply what I just read to you, that you're to live at peace and you're not to fight. It sounds like you could do that in your own strength and you would create this utopia. By the way, have you ever met people that speak a lot about uh, acceptance and inclusion? I don't know if you're friends with people that like to join Facebook secret Facebook groups about inclusion or something. Let me just say, without being grounded in the gospel, without being grounded in God, what happens is even a group that prides itself on being inclusive will tear itself to pieces and you'll divide yourselves amongst who has the purest vision of inclusivity and tolerance. And so sometimes you can find intra-war in the midst of people that would eschew such a concept, but there it is. So Paul has to connect this idea of an earthen society that is governed by an erratic spirit of love. He has to connect it to the source of love because if it's detached from the gospel, it will turn on you, and even the best virtues can hurt you. So it has to be connected to the heavenly idea, the transcendent. This is what he says in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now I want you to notice the associations he makes between these three entities. The Lord Jesus Christ, God, and the Holy Spirit. Now we all know, because you've had Jehovah's Witnesses visit you at your door, that they say, you know, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. That, okay, I mean, there, you get a point. It's true. It's not in the Bible. However, the concept permeates the scriptures. I mean, you consider just Genesis 1, where you have God the Father speaking, the Word creating, and the Spirit hovering over the waters. A similar scene is replicated at Jesus' baptism, where he comes to John the Baptist, the, the heavens part, the Father speaks, the Spirit hovers again. And you see the same language of Father, Son, and Spirit being used at the Great Commission where Jesus tells his disciples to baptize, take them to the water, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, immerse them in this singular name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Interesting language. And this idea, this association of these three entities is, uh, is throughout the scriptures. And Paul sees these three as offering ironic and peace-oriented gifts to humanity, but each one of them offers a distinctive gift. Did you notice that in the passage? He, now, he starts with Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice he begins with Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if there's much to be made out of that, but it does make sense in a way to begin with Jesus because Jesus is the clearest revelation of who God is. You actually can't understand God without Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, says Colossians 1. 
This is the irony and rich paradox of Christianity, that if you ever want to get close to God, you have to get close to a man. So he begins with Jesus, and he says that the gift of this Jesus is grace. We know this from Ephesians 2, of course. It is by grace that you've been saved, not by productivity, not by works, not by change, not by sanctification, not by transformation. By grace have you been saved. What is grace? Uh, Grace is omniscient compassion. That is compassion that really sees you. Sees you in your real life, how you actually live and act and how you think and how you feel. And the arms of compassion are still wide and he hunts you down. Uh, It's the same love that drove the uh, shamed father in the story of the prodigal son to embrace his dung-covered child. Uh, that's, That's what grace is. So that's what Jesus Christ brings. And then we have God mentioned. Probably it's referencing here God the Father. And what is, what is his gift in this passage? What's the love of God? The love of God. Uh, I was taught in seminary that the goal of every Christian sermon is to somehow convey the idea that God loves people, that God loves you. And I think that that's largely true, but I think it's certainly true that God loves you, not just largely true. I think that's entirely true. Uh, but, but, I, but how do you know that? I mean, how do you know that God loves you? I mean, I mean, look at your experience. Look at your romantic experience in the last 20 years. I mean, give me a, I mean uh, really? I mean, how do you know that God loves you? Uh, because of what? Because of what? Is, it your, um, is it the success that you've had? I mean, is it your children? Is it your parents? Is it your good relationship with your spouse? I mean, wh- what's your evidence? The reason I'm asking that is because sometimes God's love can be seen through creationally oriented evidences all around us. Some people often connect God's love to certain comforts that they've received in this life. That they have children that are healthy, and that's proof that God loves them. A spouse that still likes them, that's proof that God loves them. Uh, uh, Grown-up children that still talk to you, that's evidence that God loves you. A good circle of friends that are not actively betraying you, that's that's a proof that God loves you. Uh, You've had academic advancement, that's evidence that God loves you. Here's the problem with locating the fixed love of God in those things is because it's like the tides. It's in and out, right? Those things come and go because we live in such a shaky, destructive world that what we have today might not be what we have tomorrow. And so if you measure the love of God only by the comforts you have in life, uh, what happens when you, like Job, lose those comforts? Instead, the evidence is from 1 John. What does John the Apostle say in his elder years? He says, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. If you want to know how God is loving, look at the giving tree of Christ's cross. When I went to Peterborough Cathedral in England during the sabbatical that you provided, thank you, by the way, uh, Peterborough Cathedral has a crucifix above the altar. It's uh, red, garishly red, with gilded letters on it that are in Latin, the words are in Latin, but translated it says, the cross stands still while the world turns. Everything changes, but not that. Not that. Uh, That kind of love endures forever. And so that's the gift of the Father. And then there's the Holy Spirit mentioned, and his gift is the fellowship, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean? Uh, Does it mean individual fellowship, that you have companionship, intimate companionship with the imminent Lord of the world because of the Holy Spirit? Or does it mean that we together share, share in, in how we relate to one another the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? It's probably the latter. 
uh, because this entire passage is about how Christians live together. So the context would suggest that, that it's the uh, spirit of the movement all within and flowing among us. And this is uh, critically important because my daughters asked me the other day, they said, well, Dad, we understand God because he makes everything and Jesus because he dies for us, but who's the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? And, and I said, and you know, they're young, right? You can't really get into the, you know, the Athanasian Creed quite yet. But I said, well, the Holy Spirit is God with you right now. God with you right now. God's right beside you. God's within our family and God's within our church. And with all the people that care about you there, that's where the Holy Spirit is. So it's God with you right now, right this second, uh, uh, pervading this place. And so um, uh, that's the idea. And So I want you to notice something, though, about all of Paul's directives about the earthen society are, are directed within the church. Love one another, agree with one another, have peace with one another. But notice the directive, the direction of God's action. It's not internal, but external. God has perfect harmony within, within himself. He doesn't need anything. God simply gives away what he already has. He is an others-oriented deity. And so we have this earthen society, and we have this heavenly society, and Paul's hope is that the God of love and peace will shape what happens here and now. And this is something that we, of course, need very, very desperately. Uh, one of the things that Richard Nixon said that I'll never forget he, he commented once about the political and social instincts of Barbara Bush. He said of Barbara, now there is a woman who knows how to hate. That was supposed to be a compliment. Uh, whatever we do with that, and whether that's an accurate depiction of her or not, it's a, it's a horrific statement. One of the marks of the heavenly society's impression upon us is that hatred for us becomes unnatural that we aren't prone to constantly criticize uh, um, dump uh, endless amounts of our perfectionistic spirit upon other people until they finally uh, measure up to what we've decided is acceptable. I guess the goal for our collective, the goal for our assembly, the goal for this church and all churches is to put away the vaporizer gun, to put it away once and for all, to disassemble it. We need to end this game because no one needs your scorn. Everyone needs your compassion. Uh, years ago, we uh, spent a few weeks in South Carolina at a beach house, and uh, my daughters love the beach. And they're out all day, so by the end of the day, they're, they're all sun-kissed and cute and sweet. They sleep like angel. I mean, it's just glorious on vacation because they're, you know, they go to bed at 6.30. I mean, it's so, it's so nice. And I remember Cora and Ella, they were, they were young. Cora was five, Ella was three. They were making this sandcastle, big sandcastle, sort of eight foot by eight foot. I mean, massive with walls and towers and a, there was a church in it. I was really, you know, impressed by that. And, uh, and uh, even though it was painstaking and time consuming and in uh, some parts would collapse and they'd then fix it. They kept saying, Dad, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? And I said, it is beautiful. When they were finished and the sun was setting, I asked Ella, our three-year-old, so what are you going to name your kingdom? And she fired right back. She said, it is the kingdom of the people of love. <laughs> 
it sounds like a hippie commune, doesn't it? I mean, it's wonderful. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in a hippie commune for a while? Uh, kingdom of the people of love. I mean, well, okay, but what if? What if? What if that could happen? What if we could be shaped by the son of compassion in that way and really care and put away the vaporizer gun and risk the hard work of this fragile project called the church? And it is hard work, by the way. Free grace always sets us free to engage in difficult tasks. It's what love does to us. It gets inside, changes our affections. So has somebody hurt you terribly? Or have you hurt somebody terribly? And, you know, we've been nursing those wounds for a long time. And I find, and maybe you have found this too, that we can always discover 10,000 ways of justifying our scorn or our inaction. So easy to do. Remember Melanchthon, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. But I dare you to embrace more than just Christian ideas. I dare you to say, to hell with grudges and slights and competition and self-preservation at all costs. And instead, make St. Paul's dream come true and say, I will aim for restoration. I mean, do we dare? I think we should. After all, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on our side, all around us enabling us to stare at that heavenly love that has saved us from the dregs. And may we show that same compassion toward everyone around us. Amen. Amen.